You're listening to episode eight of Firm Up, the fermented food podcast, where we get together every week to discuss anything and everything fermented. I'm your host, Brandon, and the other one here on this podcast <laughs> is Daniela. Hello. How are you this week? I'm doing wonderful. Great. Have you been fermenting anything? Uh, no. I've been, I have been consuming my ginger bug. So you're still stuck on <laughs> not these. My gin, not my ginger bug, my ginger <laughs> Your ginger soda. ale, ginger, ginger naturally fermented soda? Yes. Um, I have been consuming it even though it technically has is not done, but it is very delicious. It's. I should have let it ferment for another week or so at least. Fermentation takes patience. What happened to the patience? I just couldn't wait. But hey, it's it's sweet and it's delicious. The only thing that it's lacking is bubbles, but I don't mind. Yeah, I tried some of your your stuff there, and it's uh, just kind of still tastes like sugar water. No, see, no, it does not. You have not tried the right <laughs> bottle then. Okay. No, it's definitely fermented and it's a little fuzzy, just not like it should be, but that's okay. I plan to uh, start another batch tomorrow so that I can actually wait the two weeks that it needs to be fermenting on the countertop before I can consume it. And then I plan to start another batch of kombucha since I am almost done with my previous batch that I found an online recipe of someone just adding chunks of like fruit in their kombucha. So I added chunks of lemon and it, it was very good. So I want to try it with oranges and pears and apples, but. Awesome. So you did do your homework on the kombucha flavoring stuff. You're actually going to expand out there and not just do plain. Yes. And I really like, and this is very simple. It's not flavoring with um, teas. It's flavor, flavoring with fruit. Just once it's in a bottle or in a jar, cut up fruit into little cubes and let it sit in the tea. And it's very good, at least with lemon so far. Hey, that's awesome. Yeah. What about you? What have you been up to? What have I been fermenting? I've been fermenting a few different things. Like I think I mentioned before, um, I did ferment. I don't know if it was previous to the this podcast or the last podcast, but I don't know if I mentioned about my uh, coleslaw that I made. A Carolina style coleslaw and it, actually tasted really good. I don't like the taste of coleslaw in general, but now I think I'm going to try it all the time. Just ferment some vegetables, get that nice tanginess and uh, like the, the just everything that's great about fermented vegetables and then add in the rest of the coleslaw ingredients towards the end, like the oil and mustard and other things that I think I added. Um, but I got the recipe from uh, Real Food Fermentation. The book's by... Alex, I can't think of what the, his name is off the top of my head, but it's a, it's a, another book that was published in 2012 that has uh, nice, colorful photos of fermentation processes. And I thought I'd give the, the coleslaw one a try, even though, again, like I said, I don't really like coleslaw. But hey, now I do. I can say I like coleslaw. So now my goal is to look online or in other cookbooks and find some coleslaw recipes and convert them to fermented versions uh, and see which ones I like the best. Oh, okay. Um, I was going to ask, though, what is the, uh, I guess, the American version of coleslaw that isn't fermented? How is that made? I don't actually know. And I don't know that I've ever tried coleslaw. I can't say I've ever tried making it. I've tried it. I just don't like it. Is it is it just raw cabbage cut up? And is, doesn't it have mayo? Or 
I think what some do, the white... but there is vinegar and different things in them. I mean, there's it's like a similar tangy flavor for some of them. I mean, some of them are very sweet, and I think that's maybe what I don't like either. Um, but yeah, I think some of them have mayo in them. I think I, I don't. I again, I just kind of turn my nose up at coleslaw when I see it. So now yeah. I have to give it a second chance, at least in my own kitchen. And how do you eat it? Uh, well, I probably eat it rather non-traditionally with either by itself or with rice. <laughs> so I don't think that's how you generally eat coleslaw and, uh, you know, at least. How do you generally eat it? I, I think it's just kind of a side, side dish to go along with whatever. Oh, okay. You know, if it's American dish and meat and potatoes or something, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, you can tell I'm really not an expert on coleslaw. So this is really something new for me. And so maybe the next time you're asking me more about coleslaw, I'll have more understanding about those kind of things because I will have fermented all the vegetables beforehand and I'll be trying all these different coleslaws and seeing which ones I like, which ones I don't, and maybe completely change my mind on, on what I think of coleslaw. Other than that, I've been fermenting some jalapeno peppers. They're still just kind of, kind of a little too mild for me. So I'm letting them go a little bit longer. They still seem to have a little bit of bubbly going on. So I'm going to continue to ferment those. How long have those been fermenting for? I forgot to date them. Oh, approximately. I forgot to date them. I don't know exactly. It just kind of all <laughs> mixes together. If I don't date the things I'm fermenting, then it tends to just kind of blend together. Um, you know, and there's, you know, it, it's still it's still fermenting a little. I mean, it, it, maybe it's been a like a couple weeks. Well, that's not that long. No, but I can't I can't remember how, can't, can't remember how long it is. But then I, you know, fermented some um, green beans in a kind of a garlic dill flavoring. And, you know, it took about mm, 10-ish days for those. I forgot to date those as well. Maybe I started them around the same time. So maybe the the jalapeno peppers, yeah, no, about two weeks because those, yeah, the green pep, uh, green uh, green beans were, were good. Yeah, I tried those. They are very good. But they have a lot of garlic and anything with garlic I will eat. Yeah. And, uh, and surprisingly, I don't, I've tried... I don't know how much I, I think I tried looking into it at one point, but it seems like the um the the main ingredient in not the main ingredient, but one of the uh the A word, I can't think of it. Can you think of what it is in garlic? The 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 chemical in garlic, I can't think of it off the top of my head. I do not know what garlic has. Well it's that it's, it's one of its um chemicals that it has in it is in antimicrobial. Um chemicals. So I thought maybe that would counteract and not allow the bacteria to grow, but I think it's for different bacteria not necessarily lactic acid bacteria. Because I've seen things, recipes for fermented garlic. I haven't tried it myself. Um, but with the success I had of those fermented onions, um, which I'm in, really enjoying cooking with more and more over the last um, two or three weeks since I fermented them, um, which was really simple. If I didn't describe it before, it was just Dicing up some red onions, putting it in a uh, salt brine, and fermenting it for a couple weeks, a week and a half maybe, on that one. And they turn out, it just, like the coleslaw, I don't really like onions raw. I like, I love cooked onions. I love the taste of, of cooked onions. I like the smell of raw onions to a certain extent. Oh, I love the smell, the taste, anything raw. Can't stand the breath. Of someone that's eaten onions or okay, my own breath, that. 
after eating it, that aftertaste that's left in my mouth. And I just can't, and, and maybe that is kind of transitioned over into like why I don't like it, but there's just something, it's just a little too pungent. It's a little too weird. Raw onions just destroy flavorings in food for me, unless it's really incorporated like a a salsa or or something Mm, like that. You don't know what you're talking about. I may not know what I'm talking about, but I do know that almost raw in the sense of fermented, but not cooked. Those are not raw onions though. Well, they to don't me, taste the same. I would not eat those raw. I, I think those are they good. They taste a little f- bit sweet, like and as if they've been cooked. they're soft and saggy. No, they're crunchy. They're crunchy. Don't mm. diss my red onions. <laughs> no, I think they're great in dishes, in a cooked meal. When you add them on to, uh, I think you just add them into a cooked meal already. But no, I I would not want to eat those raw like I do, you know, with my Croatian traditional way of, you know, some homemade bread, smoked bacon, and a raw onion. Those three things brings childhood memories. Yeah, sounds sounds gross to me. Yeah, I agree with the bad breath. I don't even like it on myself. And that's one thing that I, I just wish wasn't a, a negative about onions is that it stays and lingers for a day. Which is and, why you should try fermenting some onions. Mm, because the bad breath mm, is not nearly the same. It's not nearly but as the bad. onions. Then to me, it's not the onion that I crave and love, like the juiciness, the water. They're juicy. Oh, they're in so bread. <laughs> they're juicy. They're crunchy, but they just aren't quite as pungent. They don't have quite that raw onion bite to them. Oh, but that's they what's still so have great that about raw it. Onion smell and a bit of taste, although they have that sweetness that comes out usually. I think in they're cooking. very sweet. Okay, they're they're very sweet according to you, but that does make for an interesting like you can just I I've been just throwing them into a pan of um, stir fry esque type things or otherwise and and putting it in towards the end of the cooking process and only cook them for like a short little while and it just it brings out just a great nice fresh taste to it, especially in these winter months that's really kind of nice that that fresh um, fresh onionness without that raw onion disgustingness. <laughs> I'm glad you're happy. Yeah, I, I so so two things in the last month that I've been able to enjoy in different ways than I have never been able to before. So if you do not like coleslaw or you do not like onions, you should try fermenting the vegetables or fermenting the onions before um, eating them. And hey, it makes things taste better. I have not been fermenting any sauerkraut lately. I need to get another batch going because I'm going through the the last round that. Uh, and we have a, couple, a few more jars left of it. But thinking back to our podcast where we focused on sauerkraut, I think one of the things I'd slightly mentioned was the uh, how um, in commercial production of sauerkraut, there is a lot of waste of the, the sauerkraut juice. Whereas in if you're making it at home, that sauerkraut juice is a great little tonic to I drink in the mornings or otherwise. It's so good. But in commercial productions, there's a lot of waste. There's a lot that has to be disposed of and disposed of properly. Um, but in France, there's a specific sauerkraut producer that has been um, selling their sauerkraut juice as opposed to having to pay to have it disposed of. They're selling it to a water treatment plant. And then that water treatment plant is converting the sauerkraut juice into a biogas. How exactly they're doing that, I'm not exactly sure but they're converting it into a, uh, what they're calling a biogas and they're using it to power the water treatment plant. And then the water treatment plant is getting enough power from it that they're selling the rest of the power that they're generating back onto the grid. And I think that's kind of a cool way to uh, sauerkraut juice is powering, um, you know, uh, Which company is doing that. So, uh, it's, it's one in France. I'm not exactly sure. I'm not even sure oh, where in France. French. 
brain that you don't. Okay. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure. I, I don't even know if the, the article and video that I watched on it had actually said the actual, um, I mean, I'm sure it did, but I, I think it might've been more the area. Um, but I just think that's, that's, that's a great use of, of, of waste in commercial, just similar to like that. What's a great use of, would you say that's called, would that be upcycling? I guess you could say it in that term, but it's, that you are recycling. I don't know how common upcycling is of, of a term. I'm assuming to a certain extent, but uh, how would you describe upcycling? Well, when I guess upcycling, I see it as, so if you are to use a uh, plastic container that then you would put into a recycle bin, well, that's recycling, but upcycling is using that container for something else that you would use in your house. Like for um, like a little like yogurt a container to use right. that as a pot for seedlings for the garden or other exactly. things like that. That would be upcycling. So, so into a certain extent and um, only, I think that this is, I, yeah, maybe you could call it upcycling. I don't know because you're, you're, it's, it's, it's more, seems more similar to recycling in the sense of it would That's end up in a landfill or, or. Are you just like, recycling it? Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, it's being reused for something else, but, um, uh, we're not elevating the sauerkraut juice to a new new goal. It's being converted. So I don't know. I don't know where I put that. Upcycling, recycling, it's still pretty cool. And it's similar to uh, that episode we did on kombucha where we're talking about the um, the concepts of you of growing clothing out of waste products and sugars, streams, and otherwise, and, and using it for kombucha, uh, scoby growing. There are a lot of potential for a lot of these waste products from fermentation processes or other food processes to be used for, um, for good stuff. Well, yeah, it's just, I, it's, I, I can't even imagine how much, how much waste there is on a daily basis just in this world. Well, yeah, but then you have to think about like all the, I don't know how long it took them to figure out how to turn this into a biogas or, or who came up with the idea first. Was it the water treatment plant that came to the sauerkraut operation or the vice versa? I mean, who thought of it first? I mean, there's like many things you got to spend time and resources to figure out what to do with these things. So, I mean, it's like, yeah, there's a lot of waste, but there's a lot of money that has to be spent in order to figure out what to do with those wastes as well. So, I mean, I think that's part of the, well, the I'm sure of, that it outweighs the, I'm sure it does. And I if, think that, that we're in the direction of that. And a lot of commercial things are going to move towards that. So I, I think this is just one step towards it. I mean, it's uh, 15,000 people. Um, it, that's how much power is provided. So power for 15,000 people per year from the sauerkraut. Juice, I think that's a lot along with the water treatment plant being powered. I think that's, I mean, it's a small amount, but that's still pretty decent. I, I would think it's a lot. So now though, I want to know how to, to create my own biogas just out of curiosity. It's like, can I make some and then use it to power something in my home? Um, maybe I, I don't know. I probably don't produce that much. Although Croatian style oh. making like huge vats of home brewed sauerkraut could possibly get enough juice from that to power a little maybe for a day yeah hey that's that's all it's just say we say we did it um but uh in more 
I don't know if you'd say depressing news or otherwise, but uh, there was an, a settlement with uh, General Mills, the uh, an $8.5 million settlement over their uh, Yo, Yo Pro. Oh, is that the yogurt? Yo Plus, I'm sorry. Yo Plus yogurt. It's a, um, the, the, a probiotic yogurt that they were claiming had health benefits for the gut. And um, there was a lawsuit in a few different states, but this was specific to California settlement. Um, and it basically, yeah, it came down to Yo, people that purchased Yo Plus in the United States. Um, it was a question of whether they were paying more for something that was being false advertised as something more than it was. So was it being falsely advertised fully? Settlement. It was settled outside of court. It was settled days before uh, it was to go into to the, the trial. So General Mills still says that they think that they were fair in their marketing, but decided to settle so not to go into into further legislation. Well, will they still then continue to advertise the way they have been? Well, I think there's been, a, there's been many... Complaints or... No, many companies, large companies in the probiotic realm, especially uh, like specific for foods with probiotics, um, that, you know, the claims have been a little, a little strong, a little not much to back them up. It's probably like when we talked Exagger- about that, that exaggerated uh, possibly, or at least the, 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 it's not known exactly what those specific probiotic strains being entered into the yogurt or otherwise are actually doing. And if they can really claim that it's going to make them healthier. Um, and, and one the argument on the side of the people that were making this lawsuit was that, um, you know, healthy people already have a healthy gut. So their health, their gut is not going to become healthier. So, I mean, I don't know if that's... Oh, that oh, it was that kind of... I was assuming it was just... Eat this dating. yogurt, get a healthier gut. Like, uh, it, was, it was pretty... Like, the gist of what they were saying, as far as I understand. Okay. Um, so, it was... It, I, I mean, straight from the from the, the, the paperwork for this thing is... It led to believe that General Mills' blend of probiotic bacterial strains and small amounts of fiber will, in fact, improve the digestive system of healthy people. In fact, healthy people's bodies already maintain the proper balance of intestinal bacteria. That was the main, main claim. I think some of these... Things seem a little outlandish with with the with the lawsuits around it, but again, consumer protection. I can understand. I mean, it's important to not be falsely claiming things. A lot of the different yogurt companies, Activa's gone through uh, lawsuits. Other places have, um, as far as I understand. And yeah, it gets it gets tough, and that's probably why that but they should that I think. coffee that probiotic coffee was not making any health claims. They were just saying they had probiotics in it and hoping that consumers. Or at least there was nothing in this initial rollout of it. They weren't making any health claims about it. They were just saying that. Probably because they'd be proven wrong. Not necessarily proven wrong. I just don't think that there's enough to go off of these very specific strains. There's not enough trials or enough of anything to to really. I think there's still so much that needs to be understood about probiotics and otherwise that it's 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 kind of a little still a little early, although very profitable to be marketing probiotics um, specific for different things and. Um, so if you by chance, uh, have purchased Yo Plus yogurt between July 26th, 2007 and July 5th, 2012, you can get, I think it's, um, 
if I read it correctly, you can get $4 per purchase and you can claim up to 13 times without proof of purchase. Wait, what? You don't have to have, uh, who carries proof of purchase of the Yo Plus that they bought over the last five years. But what would I do with that? I'm confused. Uh, you, like, I don't know how you get connected with it, but like, you're like, hey, I purchased up to 13 of these in the past five years. I want my $4 times 13. Oh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, because, I mean, who's $4 have... times 13. That's great, Brandon. Just some quick math there for you. Um, but uh, yeah, I, it, uh, yeah, it's just settled. So, I mean, obviously not convicted of anything, but, um, but yeah, that's kind of the, that's kind of the world of. That's how it should be. They need to stop exaggerating. Yeah, but it's, I mean, not if, but if we don't know if it's exaggerated. I mean, I feel like didn't go to court, consumers so. should not so much trust. And I think a lot of them I think don't that's trust. Probably the more important part. Well, I think Educating of consumers is probably, and I think that's what these lawsuits do, if nothing else, is educate people to at least question some of these things versus just, I mean, I don't, I don't, it's hard to believe much of anything on a package. Oh, I know, but I guess. Especially from larger places. I I am, well, not a, a sucker for, for small scale artisanal foods, but I'm much more likely to be interested in what they have on, to say on the package. I'm still not necessarily going to like believe something just well, flat yeah. out, I hope but, not. Um, but still, I guess it feels a little bit more authentic, a little bit more trustworthy. And when you're talking about something as big as general mills, I don't know if I'm really that interested in what health claims that they have, because if I look at their main major product lines, I don't think of it as necessarily being a healthy product line. Well, it's also not something that they, um, you know, it's not the only product that they are focusing on. So I think that alone is what oh, so deters me. That, that really focuses, like if it's, if they're just cheese producers, if they're just yogurt makers, if they're, well, if they're small making scale a few something. things, I mean, even, and I've mentioned this many before, you know, Nancy's Kiefer, Nancy's Kiefer also actually they're known for their yogurts and such. I, even that's acceptable. They're, they're staying in that dairy category you know they're focusing on dairy products they're not gonna they're not producing cereal or well, as much as you mentioned nancy's kefir we need to get them as a sponsor <laughs> yes um you, yes you're definitely always thinking of your nancy's kefir i i do like their kefir hey that, How, that's good yeah although did, did we mention in the last podcast about the so. blueberry kefir i don't think so so um if you have tried nancy's kefir the blueberry version which is the one i love it is actually super easy to make it at home, especially if you're making lots of kefir. It's really just blueberries and some agave or sugar, and oh, it, it's very, very good. And um, the ones, the ones that I I've been drinking um, at home, um, taste very close to Nancy's kefir. And it's have you it's, done a side by side trial yet? I have not, but just from memory, um, the one that I've been drinking at home. It's very, very close to what I've had with Nancy's. And I have to say much cheaper um, because that one little quart, I don't even know how much is in it, is I think like $4. But I think their their kefir is more expensive as well because they're still fermenting it in with grains and in the natural, like uh, the traditional yeah, style. It's, I mean, and it should be that much. I mean, it's not something. It's not, yeah, it's not, it's not it, really it's expensive. Just, I was very, I don't know why I didn't think of trying this version at home myself sooner. It's so good. And I think for now I'm in this phase where that's the only way I like to drink kefir 
is with blueberry in it and a little bit of sweetness and it's delicious. It's a mm. great like dessert um drink after a meal. I still love my my plain kefir. Oh, I it's don't know, I can't so go amazing. back now. And I think that's also because I drink so much yogurt and so it's it's just nice to have kefir flavored with something. Um but yeah, it's it's hard to go back to plain kefir now. Oh, I love it. And I've been experimenting. That's the other thing I've been doing is trying to make a uh, kumis style drink because kumis being from mare's milk and um, it's similar, like it's it has some yeast in it. So it's kind of similar to kefir in some ways, slightly bit more alcoholic, um, but we're talking 0.5% or so in kefir and like up to 2% in kumis. Um, you know, I just like that yeasty taste. And I don't have any access to any kumis uh, as to use as a starter. But I thought, well, hey, it's yeast. And I've seen some recipes for making kumis that adds um, like wine yeast to it, to uh, to milk, to ferment and make kumis. Well, I thought, well, why don't I just, um, you know, the even though the bacteria population shifts between kefir grains and between kefir, brewed kefir, the yeast stay about consistent. So why don't I try using the kefir yeast to propagate some milk and mare's milk is sweeter than cow's milk. So I thought, well, why don't I try adding extra whey, which is the byproduct of straining yogurt um, or cheese or otherwise. And so I tried adding some whey and then uh, fermenting it that way because uh, much of the remaining lactose is excreted through the whey. So I, I thought, okay, I can get a sweeter mare's like milk horse-like milk. And um, I tried that. That kind of worked. And and so I've been propagating that same one. And uh, But I also just this this time tried adding a little bit of just sugar water to see because I, I didn't have any more way to really experiment <laughs> with. And um, and that, that sort of worked, but it still hasn't eaten all the sugars. So we'll, we'll see how that works. It, it seems a little sweet. So I'd rather have something that's a little bit less like doctor tasting and the way kind of just um, worked a little bit better. So I'm still in the process of trying to experiment, but the, so far these yeast have still been propagating time to time because again, with kefir, you can't make kefir from kefir. Like you can make yogurt from yogurt. You have to have the kefir grains, but the yeast should be in there. And you know, it's kind of my yeast bug of sorts. Like you have your ginger bug. I mean, it's kind of like those, those are the yeast I'm using to try and try and ferment this um, slightly sweeter milk. So I'll see how that, how that, well that works. But, um, a little bit like, uh, another dairy product, um, is cheese and, uh, and, and looking at labels again, uh, sometimes it can be kind of difficult to tell for a general population about like, what kind of cheese do they like, or do they want? And sometimes based on name, that can be kind of difficult, let alone different brands of cheese. So if you're, there's this interesting infographic that kind of visualized how different cheeses taste based in it was um, it was done by a, uh, a graphic designer that, that made the, the cheese poster, but it's all these different circles. And then it um, breaks down uh, the uh, simple descriptions for the different options for cheese. And uh, so a little diagram it's, it's from a paper uh, that was, that was called describing flavor using few and simple hits profiling. Um, and it's an example using it with cheese. So the idea is to like use simpler tasting 
word, ver, words to describe um, how cheeses taste. I need that because I'm horrible at explaining what I'm tasting. Yeah, a nice little visual thing. So imagine a, a little uh, circle, and this, this will be in the show notes uh, at firmup.com slash podcast slash nine. And um, I'll eventually get good at being able to say those show notes. Something just trips mm-hmm. me up every time I try and say those slashes and podcast in the same sentence. But, I've noticed, but. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I, I will get better at it. But so imagine this, this, this round circle, and then there's different words all the way around um, this, this pie or this cheese wheel, if you will. And, uh, you know, things like sharp, fruity, pineapple, bitter, sweet, waxy, nutty, strong, buttery, moldy, earthy, sauerkraut, sour, salty, dairy, and goatee being the last one. So you have all those different flavorings uh, or flavor descriptors. And then it's like kind of a web diagram. I, I can't think of what the actual term is um, for, for what those are. I kind of seen those uh, profiling taste profiles um, diagrams in uh, coffee and looking at the tastes. Some of those diagrams are a little bit more complex on, on what their descriptors are, but I think these are great little descriptors. I mean, I can think of what something goaty or buttery um, or even sauerkraut being one of them. I mean, yeah, I think that definitely describes a Wisconsin brick cheese. Um, like, uh, that was very sauerkrauty, <laughs> um, and, uh, and a little bitter and otherwise, but uh, there wasn't a Wisconsin brick cheese on there, but I hadn't had a Wisconsin brick cheese until, uh, late last year. And, and it was, it was, uh, it was kind of intense in a way that I didn't necessarily like. And I kind of like intense cheeses, I thought, but, and I like sauerkraut and I like, Kind of well, you just don't like cheeses, the mixture of it. Something didn't work for me about that. And I'll try it again eventually someday. Um, I even tried it at many different temperatures. I tried it uh, room temperature. I tried it at other things and uh, like a little cooler. And uh, it's just like I try every single time and it just tasted sauerkraut and weird. don't give up. You just keep giving it a chance. Well, because sometimes that's how taste works. Sometimes it's like I try it once and I try it a different time, especially with cheese, uh, like depending on temperature and otherwise. I mean, yes, generally I'll try and eat them at room temperature, but... There's occasional cheese that if I don't like it, and this is probably taboo, I'm I'm not a cheese connoisseur by any means, but if I really don't like it, which doesn't happen very often, but like if it's like just a, you know, some kind of fancy cheese that I just really didn't like the taste of, sometimes if I just put it in the refrigerator and don't eat it at the recommended room te- room, room temper. Yeah, it hides the flavor. <laughs> yeah, it kind of hides it. I, obviously, that's the reason why you don't generally want to eat nice fancy cheeses, um, artisanal cheeses uh, at refrigerator temperatures because – it hasn't really opened up and allowed all the flavor out there. I mean, that, that, that's with a lot of things. I mean, that's why I would generally say like a, a, a high quality beer is better, like not ice, ice cold, but like a really crappy beer, like a Bud Light or something like that tastes better. Really, really ice, ice cold. Well, not yeah. only because of the refreshingness of that. I don't, think I don't drink Bud Light or anything like that, but I I mean, it's like, I think, yes, that'd be the only way to cover up that taste. Um, but very true, but you kind of want some of those flavors coming out in, in a, a uh, like a a small batch beer or different things. So, um, yeah, no, it's, it's another little, it's an interesting infographic, especially for people that are a little bit more visual or, or for something like cheese, which can be pretty daunting or any kind of taste descriptors. It can be difficult to describe what it is a person's tasting. And the more I think a person visualizes it or understands what it is that they're, they're tasting, um, the easier it becomes to differentiate and pull out some of those different, uh, different flavors that they may not have noticed otherwise. The more descriptors a person has, the easier it is, I feel, to describe and also taste. 
I agree. It helps. Uh, it's like with education or uh, appreciation of art or anything else. The more a person understands about a certain genre of art or style of art, the easier it is to either appreciate or at least like make an educated reasoning why they don't like that piece of art. Um, you know, the the more yeah. person, the more knowledge a person has, the more they know what they like or don't like. And speaking of things that we like, I know that I like fermented foods, but why exactly do you like fermented foods? I like fermented foods for many reasons. Um, I think main one is just flavor and taste and something I grew up eating. I mean, as a little kid, I, I ate yogurt and um, sauerkraut, especially a lot. And I didn't really register, oh, it's fermented food, but you know, it is. And so mainly, like I said, flavor, um, taste, part of my culture. Um, but then currently that I've explored more with fermented foods, you know, with kimchi and some of the things I had not, um, heard of when I was younger or even into they don't have kimchi in Croatia. I don't, I don't know. I I'm don't, sure they do, but I mean, it's not something yeah, that people no, really talk I, about or know. No, no, I actually hadn't really tried kimchi until probably three years ago or so. Um, and I, I mean, I think it's delicious. I really like it, but I also like, um, that kind of pickly for, you know, like this, how would you describe kimchi? Like what's I'm see, this is where that chart cheese chart comes in handy. You just because fermentation food chart. I'm just not very good at explaining, um, or describing flavors, but yeah, I, I just like that kind of taste. Um, the spicy tang. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's very, very flavorful. Um, I mean, and, and, you know, pickles is one of those things that a lot of people, I think a lot of people even today eat and they don't really think about it. It's fermented. So, you know, um, I think another benefit or added benefit that I like is just good to know in the back of my mind is that it is healthy. That's definitely not the main and the only reason I eat something. For me, taste is everything. So I couldn't eat something that I didn't like just because, oh, it's healthy. That's just not I mean, if I'm going to eat food, I want to enjoy it. Um, and that's why I like my sweet um, ginger beer drink or sweet kombucha. Um, I mean, sure, we've discussed how we're not even sure how, what are the health benefits of drinking kombucha, but that's not why I drink it. I just like it and I like my stuff sweet. Um, so yeah, taste. Taste is pretty much the main reason. Taste is the number one reason? Yeah. I mean, I, I enjoy making a lot of this stuff. I think it's fun, especially when it turns out, especially since I'm not really a cook. I like to bake things, but I'm not the best. Per I'm just not very good in the kitchen. So when things work out, I'm very happy and excited. And um, it generally means, oh, anyone can really make it if I succeed. But still, it's it's a good feeling. So, Well, and I wonder throughout history, I wonder which came first, the taste or the need for preservation? Because fermentation happens. Fermentation happens whether humans are here or humans aren't. I, mean, I think humans, I would say preservation. Sorry to cut you off. So you think preser preservation? I think it was a necessity. But given that fermentation happens, that humans didn't create it, they discovered it and fine-tuned it to specific needs. Um, you know, I don't. I mean, I don't think that they were like, "Hey, we need to figure out a way to." I mean, I guess it could have happened that it's like, hey, we need to figure out how to store this, um, whatever we have, whatever food source we have that we have an abundance of, and it's about to get cold or something. And it's like, let's just store it away. And then it just naturally fermented, maybe. Yeah, like an accident of sorts. Or did they find something that was just fermenting? Like, 
apples that had fallen to the ground that had started to ferment some and they liked the taste of it? Or was it maybe alcohol that was the first thing that was discovered as in they liked the way that it made them feel? And, um, and so then they decided to try to replicate it themselves. You know, I mean, I guess it could go either way. I mean, but well, yeah, oh. I mean, for me, I think my, that, that's one of the things I was questioning is, you know, certain, and I can't think of anything of right now, but you know, certain things are poisonous. We can't eat them or we can only eat them if they're fermented, which I can't think of any right now, but I know there are foods like that. Um, but I'm, I always wonder it's how did we know, oh, let's ferment it and then try eating it or just that kind of stuff really, um, fascinates me. But I, yeah, I, we don't know. Well, and since taste is somewhat learned, I wonder what it would have been like in a historical period before people really knew fermentation or were even using it culturally. Um, when, I don't know, I don't know if even culture, when culture was such a, a new phenomenon, when, when humans were just, you know, Surviving. really coming onto the, onto the, the scene, was it, did, if, if it was just preservation, I mean, and it wasn't taste or otherwise, I mean, like that's assuming that they would have even liked the taste. I mean, it's, well, is it a learned taste? I, yeah, I, my instinct, and of course I have no idea how accurate this is, but I think for a long time people didn't eat just to enjoy food. Um, I mean, that was part of it. So? Well, it was movie, survival. Those, no, those, it was survival. They, those middle-aged movie or like, uh, well, I think they made food and then they learned to enjoy what they had, but they didn't have the luxury that we do. It's of pick and choose. Well, no, I don't like this. I'm just not going to eat it or buy it. Or, you know, they, they had to deal with what they had. So that's why I feel like it was preservation. And then taste came after because they didn't have, you know, there was, there wasn't that luxury of, I really enjoyed this. I'm just going to. But, but don't you think that's part of the, I mean, think about the abundance of different kinds of things that were. Um, foods and food sources and all the different kinds of yeah, wild. But think of if you had, if you have a few things you can eat and eat them all the time, you'd get sick of it. It wouldn't be that exciting anymore. Yeah. But I don't think they were able to because they were really eating um, local and seasonally. I mean, they, no, so especially before preservation, that's true, but still you eat a couple of foods in winter and then sure. I'm sure summers brought a, a bigger variety, but still it was all within that, um, the, the boundary uh, we can you know we consume stuff that we couldn't even grow in certain regions i mean one example is oranges or orange juice it's like no one ever thinks well really i technically if we were to really stick with local um many people would not ever really consume oranges or orange juice because they just bananas don't grow another one, yeah. well yeah bananas is a big yeah so it's just that kind of stuff a lot of people they don't, don't even think about the luxury that we really do have sugar. Oh, um, definitely. Salt to a certain extent as well. I mean, all those things would have been traded. At, we're talking later in, in history when, when those started coming onto the scene. But I, yeah, I really wonder what food was like uh, for the first humans. But I mean, thinking about humans being animals as well. I mean, when I look at a squirrel, they look like they're really enjoying their nuts. I mean, uh, maybe I'm just <laughs> uh, anthropomorphizing. Maybe that it just looks that way because the way that I interpret their movements. But yeah. it's 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 interesting to think if if well what was it like for the first humans? Because I think human culture now, culture especially, dictates 
a lot of what we like or don't like. I mean, when I was younger, I was a very picky eater. So I don't know if culture was really dictating what I liked then. And but I, even now as an adult, I mean, eating the fermented foods that I eat or drink and a lot of some people that have not heard, heard of kombucha or um, even kefir, you know, you tell them what it is and, and you're, you're being slightly judged. They're like, what? I've never heard of that. That's weird. You know, people judge it's, you for your, your likes of, no, I'm not saying foods. people judge me. No, it just, the, the judge. I mean, yeah, I, 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 to be honest, I do get judged in, I mean, it's, it's open judgment. It's not, but you know, people make fun of me uh, to my face about certain things or the way I eat, or I'm not in a rude way. It's more that, Oh, you, you know, you eat different or you eat healthy, which is fine with me. I don't have a problem so with that. I don't think that. if your diet is really standing out that much as being weird. I mean, no, not eating- but if, uh, you know, but not, uh, I, so I guess people that I uh, surround myself with, not many people, you know, even know what kefir is or drink it. So telling them, oh, this is kefir, it's kind of like, oh, what is that? Or, you know, even I actually had a coworker that um, he he was moving and so he was leaving us and we had this um, going out party and I, as a going away gift, purchased him a bottle of kombucha. He's never had it and had made fun of me a few times, jokingly something in reference to uh, me drinking a beer-like beverage. And so I got it for him to try. It's like he had never heard of or seen a kombucha and so it's did you like it i don't know actually i gave it he didn't drink it that night but he said he was gonna let me know and he never did but i can't imagine he wouldn't it's pretty good yes did you get <laughs> him know. plain kombucha or a flavored no i got him a plain to start with good. That's, um that's i good. mean it was a store-bought kombucha it wasn't the one i made just because um my batches are hidden, you know randomly sometimes it's good sometimes it's not so i i played it safe but but yeah so so you're talking about, you know, culture and it dictates what you consume. And I, that's, yeah, I think it's families dictate what people eat. That's how tight it is. Well, and uh, I mean, especially uh, in the United States, I'd say so to us, uh, to a certain extent, but um, there's definitely subcultures and different things that do have, uh, mm-hmm. you know, some say on what, on what a person learns to like. So what would it have been like to be back there in the day when they're first discovering fermentation and, um, you know, did like, obviously people weren't dying from it or at least not regularly dying from it to the point where people were like, no, don't eat that. You will die like a poisonous berry or something. Because as far as I understand, that's pretty much how they had to figure out things that worked or didn't work for their diet was to remember if Bob died when he ate the, <laughs> the berry, then tell everyone else, don't eat that berry kind yeah, of thing. Kind of scary. Yeah, totally different world. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd be stuck with a few options that I knew were safe and that'd be it. Yeah, and there's there are inherent risks in eating food. I mean, it's fermented foods in general are relatively safe. Veg, uh, fermented vegetables are, are very safe. Um, you know, it's, it's really hard to screw that up and get bad bacteria or molds in there to... Well, uh, to I don't think screwing it up more so, you know, if it's... It's hard sits, to screw It's going to taste bad. Yeah. It's going to taste bad if it's bad. And it's, yeah, it's and like, you know. you're, you're, it's like, unless someone's just really weird taste buds, I mean, it's going to, it'd be hard to down some fermented vegetables that were like bad. Like, you know, I mean, fermentation is. And that's like why a, people should always listen to their taste, not just consume some, something because, oh, it's good for me. Yeah. But there's some funky tastes out there that do taste good. But I think that in general, it's like fermented vegetables. There's not any, uh, any cases in the United States, uh, so, according to the USDA. Um, 
what, um, I guess just to turn it around, what, what is, why do you ferment or what do you, what is it that you enjoy about fermented foods or what draws you to them? Since well, you mentioned you were a picky eater, I'm assuming you weren't eating too many fermented foods back then. No, I was really kind of a kid, uh, uh, eating fish sticks and ketchup and, uh, some broccoli every once in a while and uh, plain pasta <laughs> with, with Parmesan. That was really kind of my upbringing. Um, not necessarily because my parents, that's the only thing they would have fed me, but because that's one of the only things that I like to eat. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, like fermented foods. I don't know when that really came into the, into the picture. And, um, at least I, I don't know when I started pickles are very, you know, like you were saying, it's kind of like a nice entry, entry, uh, gateway, um, food into fermented foods, pickles and, you know, all the fermented or once fermented foods, um, you know, like ketchups and, and other things. And of course eating a lot of, uh, Asian cuisine, specifically Thai food and different stuff. I mean, that definitely got me into some different flavors and, and uh, fermented things, fish sauce and otherwise. So there's there's lots of things. I can't really say a time in my life when it's like, because as you said, you didn't necessarily realize or think about eating fermented foods at one point. You just ate them. Um, it's not really necessarily separated as a category of foods. It's more like it's a, a genre, like it's, it's not a a genre on its own, unless we box it into that and like really just focus on the, the ways that things are made. It's generally, I think most or a lot of people think of cuisines and they think of French food, German food, Asian food, uh, you know, uh, Mexican, yeah. yeah, all those different, different. And they most, if not all international cuisines have fermented foods as a part of them. So it's not, it's kind of a, a little bit of a, uh, an alteration to think of fermented foods as, as a, a as category, a category or... of foods. And of course it's becoming more common and, and definitely more popular now to, to look at fermented foods for, for the different benefits they have. Um, you know, and some of those benefits being, you know, preservation, like we talked about taste, definitely that's the number one for me. It's like taste. I love the taste of fermented foods and, you know, other other aspects of why in general people have fermented humans have fermented throughout history um, is, you know, the preservation is a huge one. Otherwise you're salting um, or um, drying foods in order to preserve them over a longer period of time. When there's abundance of food, you want to be able to have those for a period of time to be able to eat, especially when it's cold or where it's warm and foods turn bad very quickly unless controlled in the way they're fermented. And so that preservation thing is, is huge. And, um, but that's not why you do it though. Not for you at least. Well, it is, it, it is to a certain extent, because if I just go with fresh vegetables, like, uh, when I've done, uh, uh, CSA boxes, uh, community, community supported agriculture boxes of, of vegetables, getting those weekly from a farm, a local farm. I didn't, I wasn't always able to eat everything that was in it. So sometimes things would go bad. It's much easier when there's an abundance of things to ferment them and then they don't go bad as, as quickly. So even on a small scale, even putting things in a refrigerator that slows down the, the process of fermentation slash rancidity of foods. It's um, it's 
you know, it's like those vegetables in the refrigerator are only still going to last so long, but once they're fermented, they last a lot longer. So it's just, it's a great way to be able to get an abundance of food, whether it's from the grocery store, a CSA, or from a garden, especially from a garden, because that's a reality. There's a lot of food that comes out for specific, at specific times. Sure. You can stage things to a certain extent, but it's, that's when there's a lot of cabbage, when there's a lot of tomatoes, I mean, you got to make some fermented tomato sauce, got to make some sauerkraut. I mean, there's just, so yes, preservation is still a thing even today. I, I, I mean, because uh, refrigeration is, you know, relatively cheap at this point in our, I mean, it, it could get more expensive later on if, you know, energy prices or whatnot go up. So that may become something that's more pertinent at a later date. But even still, even now it's like, if, you know, there's an abundance of, of cabbages in the garden. I have to put them somewhere because they don't last forever. They will last for a decent amount of time. Sure. Root cellaring is another option. And I just like the tastes of fermented foods. So I, I prefer to go that route and I haven't dug a root cellar yet, but I would like to do that someday too, <laughs> because then I would think that those nice cooler Temperatures might also be good for some fermentation of things. Well, and there would be constant temperatures. Yes, consistent temperatures would be would be very nice. Uh, consistent, not constant. Either way works. Um, <laughs> you know. So, and then there's there's that uh, the other aspects of why humans ferment foods are are pre pre digestion. You know that that. But do you think that part is done consciously? What do you mean consciously? Well, Was it decided where humans like? We like this because it predigests our exactly. food. It seems one of those things that just comes along with the the category or with the with the fermentation itself. I think it's I like don't a, ever think about well, this is not going to digest really well, so I'm just going to ferment it. Yeah, but there there well, there's many people that are conscious of that. I mean, it take like even um, Quaker Oats oatmeal at one point on the box. It, you know, I don't know when it ever stopped saying it, but it used to have printed on it that you soak it overnight and then bake it the next morning. Even that soaking is a like a pre-digestion. It ferments really? overnight why and did, then it's more digestible. Why did it stop? Do you know what? why? Well, it's just like everything else has gotten, it's gotten more instant. I mean, we have instant oatmeal. We have, you know, even um, oatmeal today. I mean, it's like in general with the the fast paced notion of food, it's, you know, thinking of putting that even I forget if I want to make oatmeal, I forget to put it out the night before, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it takes more time. It takes more conscious effort. And, um, yes, arguably it does break it down. Some, it makes it more digestible and it's the same with breads. It's the same with all of the things that the, the quick yeasts, we, the instant yeasts we have and different things like that, as opposed to using at one point, there wasn't anything besides sourdough starters to make bread with. I mean, you didn't have instant yeasts, uh, dried yeasts that you could just pop into bread and have the bread ready within hours. And sure, I don't know when quick breads came into the picture with biscuits and otherwise that were non-yeast rising breads, but... Um, Are there non-yeast? How do you know that? Non-yeast rising breads like biscuits or, and uh, like like different uh, Irish soda really? bread and different things like that. It rises with uh, carbon uh, uh, baking soda or baking powder oh, and different I things guess, like that. Yeah. They, they rise, but they're not by yeast formation of, um, you know, ga off gassing. But, you know, at one point all there was was sourdough, uh, sourdough breads. So everything's gotten much quicker. So I'm sure that has something to do with it, but pre-digestion is definitely a part of what, um, makes foods easier 
for us and our gut and all the more research that's out there now about the, the micro um, biome and the bacteria in our gut and keeping our uh, gut healthy, probiotics, all of this talk about all these different kinds of things really come together. And pre-digestion is, is a huge thing in that. How big of a, a difference does it make to, you know, make sourdough breads that need to rise over a, like a slow process, like over a, a few days versus a bread that is ready to go just real quick. I don't have the, I don't know how much research has been done on that, but it does make a difference and it breaks down the enzymes and um, the bacteria and yeasts are metabolizing the carbohydrates and fermenting the foods, which creates a pre, uh, a, a pre-digestion. And so it makes things uh, more term bioavailable to us. It's something that our bodies can absorb better. So some foods are going to pass through us and some foods we're going to be able to actually absorb and use the nutrients of and fermented foods that are pre-digested are generally easier for the body to, to absorb the, the enzymes and nutrients from. Isn't there corn or something? And I probably shouldn't even mention this if you, if you don't remember, but Oh, there's a corn or something that is cons- well, there's nixtamalization of corn, if yeah. that's what you're talking about. I don't think that that's not a, that's a chemical process, but that's very fermentation is the metabolizing of carbohydrates on the bacteria. Well, no, I was referring to enzymes. fermentation. I was talking about the way it, the, our bodies don't well, absorb. I'm just connecting it. Like oh, it's, okay. it's like the chemical, it's a chemical, there, it's chemical react, like it's reactions that are going on and on the micro level that are what is pre-digesting things with the, the organisms. Now, nixtamalization is the, is a, is a chemical process. Um, is that lime or something? I think it's lime. I, I, I haven't ever uh, personally processed corn this way, but yes, at one point in history, there were, you know, the, the Incas and the, the Mayans, they had always nixtamalized corn. You, you know, People came over to the Americas from over in Europe and they were not doing that, but they were still eating an abundance of corn and having, I don't remember what the, off the top of my head, what the, what the issue is, but you know, very, the, there's just certain things that our body just can't digest or that are harmful. And by um, processing the corn in in that case with a chemical and in other ways, pre-digestion through fermentation makes it so that our body can actually absorb the nutrients from a food that we could not otherwise get. And, you know, a more outstretched example of that, like amazing ability of us to connect uh, with other things in our surrounding are the, um, you know, like taking goats, for example, they can eat so many things that we can't eat, but we can drink their milk and get a lot of the nutrients that they're able to absorb out of that. And so, and then we can take their milk even farther and ferment it and, and, um, you know, have even, even more of something that's digestible. It's pretty cool stuff. Yeah. I mean, so it's like, it's all the same kind of interconnectedness and, um, you know, the, the fact that there's some plants we can eat, some that we can't, and then some that we can eat like, um, like, Cassava, the tuber plant, uh, the, or the tuber that, that is uh, very much so, it's in South America too, but in, in Africa, in tropical parts of Africa, that it's a, it's a staple crop. It's like the second most eaten uh, 
or food staple crop in, in those parts of Africa, uh, the tropical parts. And, and it has a natural, it's, it's before cyanide, but it turns into, um, cyanide when crushed and different things like that. So it has higher levels uh, in the leaves, especially, but in the tubers as well, it has, you know, a cyanide compound in it. And so it needs to be treated somehow. Sometimes they are just, um, peeled and boiled, but a very common way of processing them to release the toxins. Again, a pre-digestion of sorts, breaking down of, of enzymes and breaking down of the cyanide compound is to ferment them. And there's two different forms of fermentation. They use the heap fermentation method where you just pile all the tubers up, uh, all up from the, the, the cassava and, and let it ferment for a few days, grow some mold on it. And then they peel off all the mold and then make it into a flower. And they've got something that has much lower levels. There's also a water treatment method where they let it soak. But I was just reading an article and I'll put it in the show notes as well. It's, uh, um, comparing the differences between the heap method as they're called in this, and I don't, the water method, I think heap or steep is kind of how I think of it. But, um, it's that the, the letting it soak method doesn't actually get rid of as many of the, the, um, the poisons and the, and the, they're still cyanogenic to a certain extent. And, um, you know, it's, it's not that like someone's going to die from eating cassava, but if there's, if it's not fermented long enough or it's not treated well enough and, and fermentation seems to be a way to get rid of a lot of it and the heat method of letting it get moldy seems to really do well. Um, the residual cyanogens are much lower and in people that are eating cassava that has not been treated well enough are getting things like goiters and dwarfism and tropical ataxic neuropathy and uh, even today? hyperthyroidism and conzo. Yes, it's it's something that so you, it's not because the the cyanogenic properties are not is from what I've read are not strong enough to just kill a person. It's not toxic in that no, sense. I'm saying, but people are still having these side effects. Would they not realize by now that there's a really it's a one slow building up thing, and it's a th- something. I mean, especially like some of those things like dwarfism. I'm sure are coming about from people from um, from mothers with the toxins going on to their babies, and so there's, um, you know, it, it's it's just really fascinating that what how would that have even come about? It's like there's this plant that they can eat, but. Was it just by accident? Because obviously there's people that don't understand that it needs to be treated well enough because again, it's a slow building toxin, just like many of the things in our lives, I'm sure are toxic and whatnot and, and create different issues that we may or may not realize at this point, different plastics, different other things. I mean, there's all kinds of things in our environment that are doing slow, low toxic buildup Damage. in our body. And so it's, it's the same with the cassava tuber is that it's just creates a slow buildup of this. And where did they figure that out? I mean, all these kind of fermented things. It's like, where did they figure out that it's like, oh, people aren't getting sick if they, um, you know, they aren't getting sick over an extended period of time if we do it this way. Or was it just that that's just how they ended up doing it because they were going to then treat it and dry it and make it into a flower? I'm to, sure someone to died breads? not doing it and then they realized. Yeah, but it's not as something that kills you right away. I mean, these things aren't like deadly. I mean, hyperthyroidism and, and some of these other goiters are different things. Sure, they can kill you. But if it's not connected, it's not like it's not like Bob eating a berry. It's not like uh, I watched him eat that. He died. It's like 
we've been eating this for years and I get these kind of issues. I don't think there's that same kind of connection, especially who knows at an earlier time. I mean, where did, where did these connections of like, let's treat this this way. I mean, it's like so many of the fermented foods out there. It's like, it's a mystery. How did they, how did they think that like, you know, like some of these, uh, especially some of the soybean ferments, it's like, it's a, it's a decent process, long process. It's, it's like, I'm sure it happened incrementally and just kind of evolved into what it is today and uh, in, in different forms, but it's like, sure, let's take some mold and, um, and figure out what kind of mold even to catch and, and work with. And then we'll let it ferment these soybeans and we get something magical that in that, um, and, umami taste, uh, umami taste. And, and, you know, that MSG, I mean, it's like, where, do, where do people come up with this so stuff? many people today don't even think about any of that. They just don't even well, realize we, uh, in, uh, people in general have the of luxury of not having to realize a lot of these things. I mean, you get that in, I don't know in, if that's a luxury though. It's a luxury. Okay. Think about it. I mean, that's how humans to a certain extent have gotten to where we are is because we can specialize. We don't have to know everything. It's like the, um, the iPhone you carry, I mean, you wouldn't be able to build that yourself. And you don't, I don't think you know anyone that could just build it yourself uh, or build it themselves for True. you. So like, you don't know anyone that can build that. And most of the people that are part of building it know pieces and parts of it, but they don't like, they're not the ones that are like designing well, I, it. I agree with you when it comes to materialistic things. I just feel like food is what food keeps. Food is materialistic too. I mean, what is not? Food keeps you healthy and alive. And I feel that people really should be more aware. It's something they're putting in their bodies. Well, versus a phone. You could say a phone, a phone is something you're putting up to your ear. There's people that are freaked out about that too. No, as like the I, I get what you're saying, but it's not the same. I and I think people should specialize even in food. I just feel like people that are consuming food should maybe think about it a little more. I would say it's that way about so many things in our environment that are I mean when you were eating your fish fish sticks? sticks I mean, did you ever did you ever think about what's in there? No, I mean, I, mean, and I it's would. like you know, I, I I can imagine asking a little kid, even yourself, when you were a little kid, you know, if someone says, "Well, fish," you would associate it with your fish sticks, or enough fish doesn't look anything like your fish sticks, and not even fish really. But that, well, yeah, so I, I mean, just that's that, that's the kind of association I'm referring to. People, I just feel like people should at least be slightly more aware. But they don't have to be. I mean, that's the thing. You don't have to be aware. You don't have to to know. And what's... going to blindly, so you know, so many people are consuming. Okay, yes, foods. you could. You could argue that maybe that's you know, obesity, other things is um, a partly I, a yes. factor of not being aware of how food affects things. And exactly. I think that's, that education of of children and otherwise is is a very important aspect. But even still. Yes, education is important, but it's fine to still, specialize. We, Specializing does not—it's not the same as saying, "Well, you should be aware." That's there's two separate things. You can still specialize in making your fish sticks, but I want to be aware as to what those fish sticks are. What's in it? What what is it? Sure. And I just eat it blindly. Well, and then that's where you get other specialists, like the the people uh, like telling you what to eat and whatnot. I mean, you have which, a specialist there. So you're, but not everyone has the time, you know, the, like the time to like, again, that's where that specialization comes in. What yes, kind it's of time? To, it's important to you, but food and health are not important to everyone. I suppose you're right there. And in like, 
it, it is a luxury to a certain extent that not everyone is focused on one thing. If we were all focused on I'm food, maybe we'd be we super be... healthy, but we may not have They're... all the other luxuries that we have okay. because some no, people no, are willing no. to sacrifice their health or sacrifice other I disagree other with you. Um, focusing on food does not mean you can't specialize in programming. It's just that, that that has nothing to do with you. Can still have an interest and be uh, and work in in IT or something more specific, but you can still be more aware as to what am I eating for lunch today. That does not take that much time or effort. Well, sure, and so that's I think. Yes, I mean, and that's where like you and I like to focus on fermented foods and other foods as well, and yes. what we're eating. Fermented but food is just fermented another. food is is definitely something that uh, we're enthusiastic about. And so to a certain extent, you could argue that, you know, our enthusiasm we're sharing in this podcast with other people and, you know, so that other people don't have to spend as much time if they don't want to on, um, you know, studying everything behind it. They can listen to the podcast and, and get excited about it as well, but not everyone's going to have to the same, same depth level. But yeah, more so you than me, but um, yes. That's, that's what we're hopefully sharing with this podcast. And, you know, some of the, so that we kind of touched on some of the health benefits of fermented foods as well. But, uh, you know, it's uh, the, the live active or cooked uh, variety of fermented foods are both, you know, so-called healthy. I mean, in the sense of, you know, live culture has the probiotic uh, potential to it and the um, cooked versions still have pre-digestion. So it's important to remember that just, I know that you're big on like sometimes thinking that it's like, oh, it's cooked. So it's ruined. Um, you know, I want those fresh raw. Well, I still think it's delicious. Yeah. And, and it's important to remember that like, again, oatmeal is cooked. Bread is cooked. I mean, so many different fermented foods that we eat are cooked, but they're still potentially more digestible. Enzymes are more available. Nutrients are more available because it's, it's, um, been fermented and pre-digested. And so beyond health, there's the cost savings on, both sides of it, whether, you know, it's like in, in cooking and in, um, you know, making, I mean, in the sense of like take soybeans, for example, that's something that has to be cooked, um, for a long period of time to take soybeans, fried soybeans to the cook state. I mean, you're cooking them for hours and hours and hours or all day. Um, or, you know, that's a lot of fuel being used to, or energy being used to create something. Whereas if it's fermented, then it can cook in a, like, you know, it still has to be cooked, but it can cook like within, you know, in an hour or, or a couple hours. So we're talking about the speed of the amount of energy used to produce food is a lot, um, you know, a lot, a lot cheaper. So it's cost effective. It's also cost effective in the preservation uh, aspect as well with not having to refrigerate or other things. It's like, it can be in a cool, dark place. I mean, you can keep sauerkraut in the, in a basement or in a root cellar. You don't have to keep it in a refrigerator. So you don't have to be using more energy for that. So it's cost effective in a lot of different ways. It's also cost effective for making it versus purchasing it. You know, there's some great um, small scale products out there for fermented sauerkrauts and kombuchas and kefirs and otherwise. There's some great products out there, but they are more expensive. And if for people that can afford it or aren't interested in making it, um, you know, is it's definitely an option. Um, but a person that wants to save money or just it's a nice side effect of something that they're enthusiastic about is that, hey, it's I you know, save money. It's like, yeah, do I really save money in the, uh, in fermenting things? Yes. For as much as I ferment, but you Not know, I, if I wasn't making it myself, I wouldn't have as many things that I'm fermenting and I wouldn't be buying as much as I'm fermenting. So, you know, it's like, it probably all evens out because I'm always wanting to get the next gadget or tool or jar or something to, to ferment and experiment with differently. And especially cheese. It's like, sure. There's 
um, some cost savings, a lot of cost savings in making cheeses, especially the quicker cheeses to, to make like fetas and otherwise. But, um, you know, if you're going to age a cheddar cheese for 15 years, there's a lot of things that could go wrong in that. So it's still exciting to do though. And I think that's where for myself, that's, that's the number one reason why, not why I eat fermented foods. I mean, that's kind of that other, that list there and the taste, but it's fun. That's why I like to make it myself, ferment it myself. F, you know, what would that be? F I Y, you know, instead of D I Y F I Y ferment it yourself. And <laughs> that's, that's, I really enjoy the process because it's, um, you know, it's, it's a bit like a science experiment, a pseudoscience experiment at least. And, you know, it's, it's, it's fun to, to, to try different flavors and to try different steps and to fail and to learn from those mistakes and to try and try again. That's what I really love about it is, is that aspect. It sounds like that isn't necessarily as much what you like about it because you talk about how. I know. I actually, that's, I agree with you there. I don't go into, uh, I'm not as scientific as you are. Or I, you know, I'm kind of more laid back about my experiments. I'm not like, it has to be the specific temperature at this specific, I'm just kind of, But it's you know, so fascinating to see how like a degree of temperature may or may not make a difference for a batch of Bulgarian yogurt that's being oh, fermented. Oh, I, and I agree with you. I'm, that's just not my nature. I'm just very laid back, which is probably why I'm not very good in the kitchen, just because I have a very hard time following a specific recipe. And so, you know, even making my uh, ginger beer, I couldn't wait the, the two weeks to let the bottle ferment. I just had to open it early and start drinking it and um but no i i do think it's fun to to create something from scratch um especially if i had no idea how something would be created to begin with and then um so it's it's that it is kind of a science kind of um like a science experience experiment can't speak um but just especially if it turns out like it should that's such a good great reward for someone like me but um, but then also just playing with it, um, adding more or less of something and then really tweaking it to my liking. I mean, you don't, you know, I, I wouldn't, I don't get that flexibility in the store. I can buy a product and it's probably, it's going to be great, but that's the only way I can get it, you know? And so this way I can play with it. So yeah, yes and no to your answer or your question, um, not your answer. Um, yeah, I mean, well, like that, that makes me think going back to the specialization thing. It's like, uh, you know, it's like, yeah, that's the plus side of being able to ferment it myself, ferment it yourself, because then you get to, um, get to experiment and get to try different flavors that may or may not be available in the store. I mean, uh, different locations, especially throughout the world and in different parts of the United States, you know, I can find things on certain parts of town and, you know, and not in others. I mean, it's, it's, there is a world of fermentation out there that is not viable as a commercial market. There's many fermented foods that just don't work. You know, they don't scale up the same way. And sure, you find some really nice small scale things. But in general, yeah, making it, specializing, doing it, uh, fermenting it yourself really does make a difference. But you do have to be patient for some things. Something like yogurt, kefir, those are great. You can just, you can just make those and have them in a day. That's great. So it's you can make as many mistakes with. as you want and it's not going to be a waste of time. <laughs> well, it's a waste of product potentially if you make mistake mistakes, but, but it's a quick turnaround. Yeah. But the, the solution to your uh, fermentation impatience, you're just not fermenting enough. I know I've started a, 
Um, I actually ended up using my <laughs> ginger bug for just the, the the two bottles I made. I ended up using. I didn't even keep the bug. Um, so I have start. I made a new ginger. I'm working on a new bug, and I'm gonna keep feeding it. I'm not gonna just use it completely up and just keep making because right now I'm really liking my ginger soda. It's delicious. So, and I will let it ferment. It's two weeks that it should go, um, and even longer. I'm just going to experiment and see the different... Um, yeah, you just need to be fermenting more things, like different uh, things, not just sodas, not just other things, yeah, because but that I'm, solves the I'm, impatience. I'm kind of very specific. I tend to obsess with a few things, sure. and, I, and I do that well, only. Well, many, many batches, because then you know, you'll have them you know, kind of cyclically well, That's my out. plan. That is my plan. Yeah. So, so I am starting many batches. Um, so if you are an impatient person, it doesn't mean that you can't ferment your own foods. It just means you have to start a lot. You, you'll have to be patient in the very beginning or actually just start, oh, start and, with yogurt. And fermentation. So fermenting is so forgiving, for, especially for someone like me or anyone who feels that they are not a cook, a good cook, or just don't really succeed in, in, in making things. This is great because even, you know, there's, it's, it's hard to go wrong. You can go wrong, but it's very hard. It could just be a different flavor or a different texture or it's not necessarily wrong. So, so get out there and ferment it yourself, make a few things, or at least think about maybe why you like fermented foods. And if you have other reasons as to why you ferment foods that are, we didn't list today, let us know. I mean, you can send us feedback at, um, podcast at, firmup.com you can go see our show notes at firmup.com slash podcast slash nine i still cannot i will eventually by the hundredth <laughs> episode i will be able to say the podcast and slash and, and podcast slash. Right. so i apologize for not being able to spit that out it's okay i'm rubbing off my foreignness is rubbing off on you Yes, I am. I am uh, <laughs> unable to speak. Uh, we'll 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 figure that out eventually. But again, show notes are at firmup.com slash podcast slash nine. There and, you go. That was perfect. Yes, I just have to put on a different different vocal uh, tone <laughs> or whatnot. And uh, you can also find us on uh, Twitter at firmup, and same with Facebook firmup, and that's F E R M U P. You can also find us on Pinterest or anywhere else that you choose. You'll probably find us. <laughs> See you next week or listen to you or you'll hear us next week. Wow, Brandon, that was, that was great. <laughs>